This is an irreverent podcast. Check out irreverent.fm for shows from all our friends. Hello and welcome to Exvangelical. I'm your host, Blake Chastain. Last month, I flew down to Clearwater, Florida to participate on a panel with some amazing evangelical people. Catherine Breitbell, Chris Stroop, Kiko Ross, David Wheeler, and Julie Ingersoll. We'll hear from each of them in turn. The event was called the Exvangelical Community Roundtable, and it explored what Chris termed the paths, prospects, and projects of our community. I was thankfully able to record the event, and I'm really happy to share it with you here. I'll pop in occasionally with some introductory interludes, but for the most part, this follows the flow of the event itself. Of course, here's your standard stuff I mentioned at the top. You can follow me on Twitter at BRChastain. You can follow the show at Pod. You can join the Facebook group by searching for the group name Exvangelical on Facebook. There are a handful of introductory questions that we ask you to fill out. You can like the show on Facebook as well at Facebook.com slash also buy merch over at exangelicalpodcast.com slash shop and you can support my patreon as well at patreon.com slash all of these people that participated on the panel also have amazing work out there as well and i've listed all of that in the show notes you can support chris directly on uh, patreon Catherine uh, has an organization that she works for also like to recognize a few guests in the audience, uh, the journalist uh, and novelist uh, Josiah Hess, uh, Alessandra Ragusen, Amanda E.K. and Ryan Connell as well, who are also doing their own tour through, uh, through the states. Um, before we get into the individual uh, discussions here, I'd like to talk a little bit about the term exvangelical. The podcast, which I host, started just over two years ago in July 2016. Since that time, the term has become quite popular in des- describing people who have, lived, who have had lived experiences within evangelicalism, but for a variety of reasons, were either forced out of their evangelical communities or left. The reasons for people leaving are, to be a little cheeky, and this is an inside, insider type group, the reasons are legion, to be honest. Um, some may leave because their theology became too liberal for their gatekeepers of their church, or denominations, or over, over issues such as biblical literalism, uh, matters of social justice, institutional racism, or anti-LGBTQ bias. Some may leave because of incidents of racism. Some may leave because they are gay, queer, or trans, and they're not accepted as they are. The reasons are never pat. They are always personal. And leaving evangelicalism has profound consequences for the individual. They may lose family, friends, and even their livelihood. The trauma this causes in the life of the evangelical is real. That is why I've been so encouraged by the community that has grown and expanded online over the past few years. Thanks to social media and podcasts, we've been able to find like-minded people who have deconstructed their fundamentalist experiences 
and are forging new paths forward. The Exvangelical Facebook group has over 3,000 members, and the Exvangelical hashtag receives tens of thousands of impressions on Twitter each day. Other hashtags, such as the one that Chris started, Empty the Pews, see similar engagement. Exvangelical is a repudiation of evangelicalism. It confirms, it affirms what evangelicalism condemns. We embrace moral and religious autonomy. We embrace the LGBT community fully, are thoroughly feminist, denounce the role of white supremacy in society in general and white, white evangelicalism in particular. We seek to be aware of the intersectionality of our work and build up one another's individual projects. There's no requisite theological creed. You will find progressive Christians, atheists, agnostics, Wiccans, and other spiritual expressions within this community. And equal respect and understanding is expected because it's our shared socio-cultural heritage that binds us together. We have much in common and much to learn from one another. I believe one of the most effective ways to advocate and express evangelical experience is through stories. And today you're going to hear stories about life inside and outside the evangelical subculture, told through personal narratives, academic study, investigative, investigative journalism, and legislative work. Thanks for coming. Now let's get into it. first person that will be speaking today is Catherine Breitbill. She was, according to her website, uh, she was homeschooled from the start of first grade through high school. She was the youngest ever precinct com uh, committee woman elected to the Republican Executive Committee. She's since changed parties. <laughs> she, uh, she received her BA in information and computer, sci computer science from Covenant College and a JD from the University of Florida, Levin College of Law. She's also a board member and legislative policy analyst for the Coalition of Responsible Home Education. Their mission is to raise awareness for the need of homeschooling reform, provide policy guidance, and advocate for responsible home education practices. Welcome, Catherine. Um, I think what I wanted to do today, and thanks for everybody for coming out, is kind of talk a little bit about the history of the homeschool movement uh, by kind of telling the story of how my family got involved, which is fairly similar to um, the experiences that other people have. Um, and every homeschool story is different. Everybody's experiences are different, but there's a lot of commonalities um, in the last few years. Um, in discussing, contacting with other homeschool alumni from around the country, we realized that we had all the same stories, same cultural experiences, despite being spread out around the country in like very different backgrounds and families. Um, because of the way that the homeschool movement um, percolates these ideas through books, through conventions, through speakers, and so it, the homeschool movement in a lot of ways was one of the big driving forces in radicalizing the religious right and driving evangelicalism even farther into conservatism, farther into the religious right, political right, because of an intentional strategy by the religious right movement leaders within the homeschool movement to use homeschooling to create 
um, soldiers in the culture war, the idea of arrows and quiver, um, which is in the quiverful theology, which is the idea if you have lots, you should have lots of kids to um, create more people to take over, site, take over government. Um, and um, so telling a little bit of my story, uh, my parents started homeschooling in 
and that's the, the purpose of like the homeschool movement, or the, the religious homeschool movement is to raise kids to take over American government. Um, so my family was interested in politics anyway, so when like the pressure of like push, getting involved in politics, getting involved in government, um, like it was kind of a natural fit because so that's what and that's how like a lot of these movements work is that they take um, people who already have these inclinations and they hype it up and they um, and then you but you, they don't really tell you out front that their end goal is to uh, implement a Christian theocracy. It's once you kind of get involved and get more and more involved that that sort of starts. Um, that that starts unfolding, and, you, and by that point you're in thick with it, and it seems like it's normal because that's what everybody around you is talking about and believing. So we ended up getting involved in Operation Rescue in the early 90s because some of our homeschool friends were leaders in like, National Operation Rescue running the um, youth Operation Rescue programs, and so since we were friends with them from homeschooling, they kind of nudged us along in that way to get involved, um, which is a fairly common thing where you, with homeschooling, when you get into those more extreme movements, it's because you know other homeschoolers who are involved, and they kind of start talking it up and encouraging you to get involved. Um, so by the time I was um, 13, I'd been arrested like three different times in two different states with Operation Rescue. Um, I'd spoken at Operation Rescue events, did like interpretive dances at Operation Rescue rallies. Um, and they were sold the idea, and they especially targeted the youth, this idea that you are gonna be the future leaders and you're going to take over um, the country and this is your first step and your first training in taking over and it's a very kind of heady experience because they took these young idealistic kids and they sold us this idea that we were already leaders uh, which is interesting I learned in reading about ISIS that they actually use a very similar tactic in giving extreme responsibilities to young kids in order to get them fully engaged um, in the movement. Uh, so, um, yeah, so when then, um, yeah, my, I, I, my parents were more, um, I, my parents believed in educating their daughters, which is not always the case. So my sister and I went to college. We, my parents always encouraged an education. My parents discouraged early marriage. So, in certain ways, we were kind of outsiders, uh, even as we were in thick with the movement, because um, the culture around us was pushing the idea you should marry at like 18, 19, 20, um, that you shouldn't get an, that girls shouldn't get an education. Um, and that, um, yeah, so I, so going off to college and getting those, ex like even though I went to Christian college, I went to Covenant College, uh, I had professors who intentionally kind of debunked a lot of the Christian history myths that um, were taught in like the 
Bob Jones or Rebecca, these very conservative Christian history textbooks, and kind of opened my eyes to how much those textbooks had lied to me about everything. Um, and so this is also um, the, um, yeah, so this, yeah, so then as in the last, um, like, five or six years, homeschool alumni through social media has started, started connecting um, the, and realizing that all of our experiences that we had were the same, that even though, like, I grew up in an educated um, middle-class family with educated parents who, like, encouraged college, I had the same, like, experiences as, like, these kids who grew up in, like, working-class, very, like, rural fundamentalist families because of the homeschool movement. We started sharing stories, um, and then um, that led to the launch of Coalition for Responsible Home Education um, back in 2013, which advocates for homeschool children, both in religious and secular homeschool families, because homeschooling is very underregulated, which it's intentionally underregulated precisely because the religious right didn't want anyone looking into what they were doing. So we've been trying to undo basically a 30 year long game of using the homeschool movement of setting up all of these laws to, that were desi intentionally designed to fly under the radar in order to create soldiers for Christ and take over the um, American like government, which um, is kind of where we are right now. Um, and so, um, yeah, so I guess with that, I will hand it off. Hi there, Blake here. Just popping in to mention that at this point, Catherine handed the mic over to Chris Stroop. Longtime listeners to the show know Chris. Chris has been on the show twice and is an active partner in building exvangelical community and conversation. He's an academic and a journalist whose work covering the religious right has been published in Religion Dispatches, Playboy, Foreign Policy, and most recently, Game Magazine. And with that context, let's return to Chris. Uh, I'm not very tech savvy, uh, even though I'm kind of known as a Twitter personality that um, sort of accidentally happened, but it's helped us to build uh, the exvangelical community, which we're um, you know, here to discuss and I think in some ways uh, celebrate today. Um, it's been very much the rise of the internet and social media that has um, allowed so many of us to connect with one another in recent years and to find the kinds of projects that other people are working on and to realize that so many of us have had very similar experiences. Um, we called this event uh, the Exvangelical Community Paths, Projects, and Prospects. And I want to speak to sort of every point there today a little bit in um, kind of telling some of my own story and then moving into, you know, what uh, exvangelicals are, are doing now and what some things I think we could be pursuing could, can be for the future. Uh, and I'll just say up, up front, you know, I think uh, we want to organize more of these kinds of in-person, offline events. I think that building a community that uh, exists uh, outside of Twitter and uh, outside 
the internet in general would, would be a good thing. So we kind of hope that by hosting something like this, uh, it might encourage people who are you know, from this area to connect more locally and that things might sort of uh, you know, start to snowball from there. And um, I know that uh, Josiah Hessa and the group that's here with him today, you know, they're planning to do a lot of events in different localities right now as they're um, touring the country um, as part of his uh, launch of his second book in the Carnality series, which is a psychological horror series um, about the history of evangelicalism. I mean, it's really, it's, it's, it's remarkable. I've, I've read the first book in the series. The second book is just out. I would highly recommend it. So that's one project that I want to highlight. And you know, I didn't know that he was out there in Denver doing all this stuff until about a year ago when I think the online evangelical community really started expanding. And they're also, uh, part, part of what they're doing now is they're, they're gathering stories. They're going around to document um, both evangelical and evangelical history and individual stories, which is a lot of what uh, Blake does with the evangelical podcast. And I think um, for many of us, those kinds of stories are, are simply really important. Getting them out in public and hearing other people's stories and saying, hey, I'm not the only one, uh, is validating and empowering. And I mean, you know, many people have left hardline conservative religious communities, oppressive, abusive communities over the years. Um, but to be able to connect uh, with, with others is something that hasn't always been available. It's often a really isolating process. And, um, you know, part of what I've um, done in helping to build evangelical community has been to uh, create and promote certain hashtags. And so often when you see these hashtags, when they trend and people really start to pick up on them, you see a lot of people saying, oh, you had that experience too? I thought I was the only one. So I think that that's really important. Um, I'm uh, known for creating the hashtags um, empty the pews, uh, which um, I launched just a little over a year ago as kind of a protest against evangelical complicity in what happened at Charlottesville and the way that evangelicals after Trump said there are very fine people on both sides, there's very fine Nazis out there, you know? Um, <laughs> that uh, evangelicals were either silent on that or immediately went to his defense. I mean, Robert Jeffress said on TV shortly after that that Trump didn't have a racist bone in his body, which is just, you know, utter bullshit, like extreme, <laughs> ex extreme gaslighting. Um, and it was frustrating to me. I was just riffing on Twitter and I was thinking, how do you even get through to, to evangelicals who are just masters of projection and deflection and, and um, a total lack of self-consciousness? They don't listen to any criticism, ever. But I thought, well, there's one thing that they are afraid of, and that is losing the youth and losing numbers in their churches. And so that's how the hashtag empty the pews was born. Um, and I, I called for people to share their stories of either why they had, had left uh, evangelicalism or to leave their churches now and protest and share those stories. And I have talked to a number of people for whom uh, the evangelical embrace of Trump, and they're still around 75 or 78 percent, you know, rate, rate him favorable, 78 uh, percent of white evangelicals, I think, according to the last poll I saw. Um, so that was the last straw for a lot of people. And for many of us who had already left because we were personally alienated on some level, um, either the anti-intellectualism or being queer or the misogyny or the racism. Uh, it, it, I think the election of Trump really was galvanizing and helping us to, helping us to start trying harder to connect with others. 
uh, a lot of us have been kind of voices crying in the wilderness, trying to you know, say things about um, what's wrong with evangelicalism and how, as a political movement, it's, it's hurting the country. Um, and that sort of brought us together. Um, so other hashtags that have been effective, um, Christian Alt Facts has trended a couple of times and it's helped uh, people like me who went to Christian school or like uh, Catherine who was homeschooled to um, expose the kinds of really bizarre things that we were taught. Like, you know, the Loch Ness Monster is real and proves that dinosaurs and humans existed at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> or the amount of dust on the moon shows that the Earth couldn't possibly be billions of years old. <laughs> uh, yeah, never with references to peer-reviewed literature, I wonder why. But uh, anyway, um, so that, that was kind of a good one. And um, rapture anxiety was another, was another one where a lot of people were like, oh, I thought I was the only one who grew up terrified that I was going to be left behind and have to survive the tribulation, which, by the way, that's a huge theme in Josiah Hess's literary work, which everyone should read. Um, so, so yeah, those have, those have been empowering. And then I think uh, one good thing about this is that it's brought this community together. But another thing is that you know, people from outside uh, of, of that community, people who didn't grow up in the evangelical background, uh, they see these trending hashtags, and then it helps us to um, expose the extremism that a very large segment of children in America grow up with. And so much of America thinks that, well, it's, oh, it's, that's just really marginal stuff. We don't have to care about it. We don't have to worry about it. But, you know, uh, it's not marginal. It's the vast majority of evangelicals, and there has been a radicalization, particularly since the 1980s, um, that... Catherine has been uh, a part of, my family was kind of a part of too. So um, when it comes to you know, our, our prospects, I think for me personally, the, the goals of the evangelical movement, I, I certainly share with Blake uh, both the idea that you know, collecting stories and, and getting those stories out there has, has immense value. And I think it has immense value uh, in, in two ways. I mean, one is for us because it's very healing you know, though sometimes it can be triggering. But uh, another way, it, it has values for the rest of American society where they, they need to wake up to the very real presence of authoritarian Christianity in the United States that, you know, is currently pretty much in control of, of the government. Um, they need to wake up to how dangerous that is. We need to stop treating religion as inherently benign um, and stop treating every large Christian group as inherently benign. You know, so if we get the public to listen to our stories, if we can become stakeholders in national conversations about evangelicals, we can start to change the media narrative, which has been so shaped in their favor, uh, thanks to their maneuvering with events like the gathering, and thanks to you know the kind of charisma of fake moderates like Russell Moore, um, and you know maybe Akiko will talk about him. I don't know because she's going to talk about her experience of uh, you know being very heavily involved in Southern Baptist churches. But, you know, he uh, gets coverage in uh, major media outlets all the time, and it's always very positive coverage. He puts such a great spin. They're like, look, he, he thinks that black people are equal to white people. Isn't that great? I mean, that's a super low bar, right? But, <laughs> um, the, you know, they pat him on the head, and then, and then they're like, see, most evangelicals are just fine. They're not a threat to democracy. But, you know... Russell Moore, if you go dig into his website, he has called pluralism and feminism heresies. So he's talking out of a different side of his mouth to um, the evangelical audience. 
And if you don't accept pluralism, you don't accept democracy. You know, that this is an anti-democratic authoritarian force. Uh, it basically owns the Republican Party now, and it's undermining democracy and the rule of law. And if we want to reverse that, we, we have to expose it. So part of what I'm trying to do is to uh, shape uh, media discourse as much as possible. We've gotten coverage. Uh, Exvangelicals have gotten coverage in Newsweek, in The Guardian. Um, so we're making some strides in that regard. So I guess that's what I really wanted to say about prospects, and I've highlighted a couple of projects. Um, you know, another one um, that, that I'm doing is just my own uh, blog. It's called Not Your Mission Field, and you can find it at chrisfroop.com. I have an ex-evangelical conversations series there. It's part of where I get other people's stories, and then I also do uh, analytical essays, or I would call them auto-ethnographic, because they combine elements of autobiography uh, with uh, sociological analysis, right? So I situate my own experiences, which helps to draw people in, uh, in, in these broader tendencies. Uh, so yeah, so then to kind of go back and I guess do this sort of in reverse order uh, to talk about paths and just a little bit about my own story um, and how I got to that point. Uh, I was also sort of a part of this 1980s radicalization of evangelicalism where, you know, I think you know, over the, that period up to today, any kind of serious distinction between fundamentalists and evangelicals no longer really holds. You know, sure, there's 15 to 20% of them who I don't know what they're doing there, um, you know, and, and, and don't vote for the Republican candidate for president every single time and, you know, down the entire, you know, um, party line. But, um, you know, overwhelmingly white evangelicals are hardline, radical, authoritarian conservatives. Uh, my parents came from, you know, families of fairly moderate religion. My mom's parents were, well, her, I guess my, my grandma is my last remaining grandparent, so still is, though she's not really going to church these days, but United Methodist. My dad grew up Lutheran, I think Missouri Synod, but his family just didn't take it that seriously, you know? And um, after the turbulence of the 1960s, and they were going to Ball State University in the early 70s, um, I think they were really looking for something to give them a kind of sense of solidity and stability, and they found it in um, the, the campus house there that was run by a Christian Student Foundation. So they kind of had conversion to the, uh, this more sort of radical form of evangelicalism. And if they hadn't, I guess I wouldn't have been born, uh, so there's that. But, <laughs> um, uh, but, but yeah, so my mom, uh, got a teaching degree, and then um, she became a Christian school teacher by the time that my younger sister and I were old enough to go to school, um, which meant we were expected to go to the Christian school. And I think a lot of people don't know this, but Christian schools uh, pretty much require the children of teachers to attend those schools, and they used to pretty much waive the entire tuition, but now they just give you discounts that increase with seniority. So my mom is still a Christian school teacher, and uh, my dad, when I was born, he was a high school marching band director. And then he was doing um, freelance music stuff, arranging, composing, writing jingles, that sort of thing, uh, studio work for a while. But then he became a music pastor. And um, we were at an independent Christian church when he was first a music pastor. And my family didn't have as much direct experience with um, activism as Catherine's family, but it was always encouraged in our environment. And so, you know, I, I've never been arrested, actually, but um, I was taken to an anti-abortion protest. There was a nationwide, you know, anti-choice protest 
1991 and I think other years too called Life Chain. And the church that we were part of at that time, Traders Point Christian Church near Indianapolis, bust people out to the protest. So I did that precisely once. It was it was weird, but you know, <laughs> you know, they take uh, you know small children to these things um, where people are you know having showing these gruesome signs and holding up models of fetuses and yeah, um, and then in. Um, then my dad got a phone call from uh, a pastor who was doing what they call a church plant, you know, in Colorado Springs, Colorado, that was more uh, mega church inspired, I would say, this whole like sort of hipster Christianity, seeker sensitive movement. You don't have a church bulletin, you call it a program, you make church into a rock show. So he was uh, excited about that idea because the, the independent Christian church was a little bit boring for him in terms of his um, creative side. So we, we moved the family to Colorado Springs in 1993, which is also the year that Focus on the Family moved there. And um, one of the big executives in Focus at that time, Kurt Leander, attended our church, which as far as I remember, my dad kind of considered a feather in the church's cap. Um, now he's like, oh, I was never into Focus on the Family. I'm like, yes, you were. <laughs> <laughs> and he would listen to Rush Limbaugh in his, I don't remember what year, 1980-something red-orange ugly Pinto that didn't have air conditioning. And um, he's like, oh, I was never that into Rush Limbaugh. It's like, yes, you were. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so, you know, the, the Christian school there was even more extreme, Colorado Springs Christian School. I remember getting yelled at by a red-faced lunch lady once because she overheard me calling humans primates. And I was like, it doesn't mean we evolved. It's just a biological classification. Because <laughs> I, I was a super nerdy seventh grader. <laughs> but <laughs> nope, she was having none of that. Anyway, um, because that pastor, classic case, you know, sort of went on a power trip. And I don't have all the details because evangelicals are always super vague about these things, you know, purposefully. Um, apparently was abusing his authority, didn't want to submit to an elder board, threatened the job security of my dad and the youth pastor, a guy named Marty Longcore, who was also from Indiana. So they wrote a strongly worded, but I'm sure very, very vague, though I still hope to find it someday, letter to the, <laughs> the missionary church, um, basically complaining about his abuses. And then they, through, also through the umbrella organization of the missionary church, decided to go back to Indiana and start their own church plant. Um, so we went back, and I went back to Heritage Christian School in Indianapolis, which is where I graduated from. That church plant failed, and uh, some of the people blamed my dad for not tithing a full 10% of his salary, which was ugly because, you know, he didn't make very much and couldn't really afford to. But that's obviously why it failed. Nobody had, you didn't have enough faith. <laughs> um, so that definitely shaped my experience of Christianity, but my, my deconstruction really started when I was about 16 years old. I read the entire Bible through for the first time, and I couldn't make certain things hold together, and I didn't like this you know, um, divinely ordained genocide that I was reading about in the Old Testament. And so I went and talked to our then pastor, who later also became a Bible teacher at that school, um, Marcus Warner, who was big into spiritual warfare, and um, told him about my doubts, and he seemed very sympathetic, and everyone thought he was a real intellectual in our community. And so he gave me some apologetics book to read, not one of the famous ones. It was in question and answer format, and I can't remember what it was, but it wasn't Lee Strobel or Josh McDowell or anybody like that. And I read it, and the answer still seemed kind of too pat for me to resolve all these issues that I had with taking the Bible as inerrant and literal um, contradictions. And so I went back, and then, of course, the problem was with me. 
right? So I, that's where I started to experience serious spiritual abuse. I was, I was obviously harboring sin in my life. That's the phrase that he used because I, if I weren't, I would be able to read the Bible through the Holy Spirit and to see that it's, of course, inerrant. How could it be otherwise? Uh, so it was my fault, you know, and then this um, led to a lot of anxiety and doubt through the rest of high school. Um, maybe Calvinism is true and I'm just part of the reprobate. There was the time that I thought I'd committed the unpardonable sin and had a palpable lump of anxiety in my chest for a week <laughs> until certain people in my community managed to convince me that since you want to repent, obviously you can repent. <laughs> so you must not have blasphemed the Holy Spirit. Great. Um, so, you know, I kind of went on that way, becoming increasingly progressive, but mostly dissimulating uh, with my family because it's very hard to make that sort of break with your family you know, and the people in your community and the social cost that comes with that uh, for almost the next two decades or so. I mean, it was only when I was 35 that I first published a really scathing uh, piece of commentary that was critical of evangelicalism. And I published it on Religion Dispatches, and then it was picked up by Salon and Alternate, so it got a lot of play. And that created a really rough couple of years with some of the people in my family. Um, my aunt yelled at me for hurting my mom. My sister yelled at me for hurting my mom. They said, I'm attacking everything they stand for. Because, you know, you can't just be attacking homophobia. You have to be attacking everything. That <laughs> everything. Um, and had a couple of very awkward years of very difficult conversations with my mom that also involved me ultimately telling her that I'm queer, um, which she did not initially take well. But I'm fortunate in the sense that it has um, you know, led to a place where my mom actually respects my boundaries now. And I mean, and they knew that I wasn't going to church for years. And my mom kept saying, you know, church is a great place to make friends. Well, she doesn't do that anymore, <laughs> thankfully. And um, my dad had already, had already really kind of, he was a safe person to talk to because unlike most evangelicals, he's, he's not really threatened by difference. Um, so, you know, I was still in that kind of place where I sure wished that I had more people who'd had similar experiences to talk to. And then Trump happened and then hashtags happened. And <laughs> that's my story. <laughs> I, I think you <laughs> the next panelist we heard from was Akiko Ross. Akiko had spent 40 years in the Southern Baptist Church before ultimately leaving after the rise of Donald Trump and the support she saw for him inside the church. Her story is incredible, and any further introduction I would try to provide would not really do it justice. At the tail end of the Q&A session, she mentions that she will have some more coming out in the future, and I, for one, cannot wait to read it. Here's Akiko. I go by Akiko socially because I still work in the legal field. My story is not as complicated as theirs, and I don't have the academic credentials of anybody else on this panel. Because I was raised by a Buddhist mother and an Air Force father who was Church of Christ. So if you don't know those two cultures, then you're unaware that both of those cultures prefer male children only. So when you grow up, and my mother had never wanted to be married or to have children, so she made sure she let me know from a very early age that she had gone to an abortion clinic to get rid of me, and my father stopped her and married her. So by the time I was nine, it was very ingrained that I was a very unwanted kid, and I wanted a place to belong, 
and I walk down the street to a VBS, a Southern Baptist VBS, where they welcome you. They welcome you with open arms. They tell you how much you are loved, and they accept you where you are, or so you think. So I start in with evangelicalism at a very early age, and I'm the only fam one in my family going. So I don't know about all the other things happening in the church because my perspective is as a kid who's just being accepted in a group, and community becomes very important to me. But I was always a Democrat. I spent one brief year as a Republican, and my job for the Republican Party in Northwest Florida, I worked as a party hostess. So my job was to dress up in a gown and introduce powerful Republican men to each other and try to avoid them grabbing me every chance they got. So I ended my experiment with the Republican Party very early because of that. So when I'm a Democrat and a Christian, an evangelical Christian at the same time, it's the same kind of dichotomy I'm experiencing at home where my father is trying to raise me as a boy, but I'm being told I can only do girl things. So I turned to drinking at a very young age, and I'm very, very good at hiding it, taking the thermos to school, and I can function perfectly fine because school is so very easy. And no one knows, not even my closest friends would know. And because I am half Japanese, I don't share any of it. I'm all about keeping the keeping faith, never losing faith, never bringing dishonor on your family or your group or anything. So when things started happening, such as Roe v. Wade, I marched for Roe v. Wade as a preteen, but I don't tell anybody. I marched in the later 70s for a woman's right to have credit cards in her own name, and I fight with the local store to give me credit, insisting that my gender should not stop me. They give in because I show up every day for four weeks and they finally, <laughs> they finally give up. But when I, be, when I start getting involved in a Southern Baptist church, it doesn't take me long to understand that women have a place in the church, but it's second place. It's always going to be second place. And the first thing you have to be able to put away is your intelligence. You have to put away your intellect. You have to be able to laugh at whatever some man says and be able to accept that he is always going to rule over you, that his opinion matters and yours doesn't if it disagrees with his. So you're pushed into early marriage because you're told, and I, I'll tell you this, before I was 39, I was married and divorced four times, all to Christian men, all of whom never bothered to propose, but just announced that God told them that I was the one and I was so involved in the church that I did not see that I might have a say-so, that I had the ability to say no, and so I didn't. But by the time I was 39, I was already deconstructing without realizing it. I started in 1998. I had been a Baptist messenger for I don't know how many conventions, but the Paige Patterson Convention is the one that does me in. When they write the new statement on marriage, and when they basically tell you that women are only compliments to men, that we cannot be leaders except over children in our homes, I realize I'm still in a dichotomy that I am not fitting in. But I still try for years to fit in. But first I write a letter to the convention revoking my membership as a Southern Baptist 
If you don't know this about that, they keep you on their rolls forever. They'll move you from church to church, but they will not remove you unless you tell them to. So I did it. I kept attending Baptist churches, but I stopped tithing in 1998. And I thought that would disqualify me from the teaching and the leading I was able to do, but it didn't because there is a dearth of leadership in the Baptist church, especially when it comes to leading women and children, which is, by the way, the only areas you can lead as a woman. I began in singles ministry, but could not lead a class on my own because I needed to have a man lead with me and began to realize very quickly how little those men knew how to teach, that they had positions just because they were men, not because they knew how to reach people. So I began to form women's groups and realized my groups were getting bigger and bigger and the men's groups were not growing. And when I was asked, I would say, you have got to be able to talk to people and make a connection. And if you're not able to connect to them where, where they are, they don't care what you have to say. So my Bible studies became more about self-esteem and raising yourself up to see yourself as being an equal to a man. Now, I could do this through the church because they never looked at what I was teaching. I had been involved for so long, they no longer really had any oversight as long as I was addressing only women. But what I was beginning to see and began to alarm me through the 80s, 90s, and then by the 2000s were, I was dealing with women that were depressed, anxious, unhappy, wanting to work at more fulfilling jobs, but being told that they were, their jobs were to have children, raise children, stay home, have more children. You can have a little teaching job on the side if you want but you can't go into any fields that matter. So we didn't have women professors, women lawyers, women scientists. We didn't see any of that until lately. This is a younger generation of people up here who see whose evangelicalism has told them to make an army that takes over these jobs. But I come from a generation where women were not to do any of that. So I stopped my education for my husbands so they could have their educations, including putting one through for a second degree and then having him leave. So my youngest child who is sitting here was diagnosed with a progressive disorder when she was five. And the women of my church came to me to ask me very sweetly, what unconfessed sin did I have that I wanted to share in order to heal her? And my response was, don't you believe that God made everybody? Do you think he makes mistakes? Because I don't believe that there would be mistakes and I don't think anybody on the planet is a mistake, including her. So my journey was a slow one. It was like when you drop a frog into cold water and then turn up the heat. The frog will die before the frog ever realizes he needs to jump out. I didn't realize I needed to jump out and then the 2015 election cycle started. And I noticed that my friends going back 40 and 50 years were suddenly on this Trump train. And I couldn't understand how, and I would start to have conversations with them. And it dawned on me very quickly, the reason that they see him as ordained and anointed and put into office by God is because he is a white man. Because when you ask them, what about Obama? Wouldn't he have been ordained? How about Bill Clinton? 
they don't see any of them as having been ordained for office. And then I got to hear about something that I'd never heard before called the Cyrus prophecy, where you can use an evil man to do the bidding of God and for the, be for the betterment of the country. And that's where they hang their hat. I call him the orange calf because it is like the golden calf when Moses comes down from the mountain and he realizes all these people have turned away from God and worshiped an idol. And that's how I see Trump. And when that happened, I began unfriending them all. They would write me and call me and say, why? And I said, we are not morally compatible anymore. I, I am not gonna be able to watch you trash people who are not white because I am not white. You have always thought of me as white when you didn't think of me as yellow, but I'm neither one, I'm both. So in dealing with Christian men in the church as a single, I learned about something else I didn't know. Apparently growing up on military bases shelters you from a lot, but there is a thing called yellow fever. And if you are, are Asian, the, especially if you're Japanese, the gist of it is, is that they see us all as geishas and they see geishas as basically prostitutes. And so I would be propositioned by Christian men and married ones too with, I, could, I should be able to sleep with them because you know it's not really cheating on their wives. It's not really cheating because I'm, I'm a prostitute anyway, right? And it's like, I was full on in purity culture how do you think I got married so many times? It isn't because, it is because it's marry or burn. That's what you learn as a Southern Baptist, marry or burn. And so when you're under that pressure and a man approaches you and tells you that God has told him you are the one and you believe God, then you believe him. So now I'm 50, almost 58, so that's looking at 20 years back. In the meantime, in 2015, I walk away from the church entirely because I realize I've now bought into a system that's a cult, one that treats white males as the only, only acceptable leadership anywhere. And I can't deal with that because I meet too many people who are so good at everything and are not given the chance simply because they were not born with the right body part and the right skin color. So I, look at this as even more so the patriarchy has made it so that women, Christian women especially, have begun to feel like they are worthless and I don't like it. I don't like it when I hear a woman say her highest calling is to be at home and have children. I think that's a great calling. I don't think it's the only one. When Ivanka Trump says on Labor Day to, to thank the women who stay home and I'm thinking, this was about organized labor. This is not about somebody staying home. And I realize how out of touch the religious right has become. And that the reason that they want to keep us where the we are is because if we rise up and if we work together, we can change the way this country is going. And that's what you're seeing now. The Me Too movement showed how, how prevalent sexual abuse was not only in the community at large, but within the church itself. Because within a Southern Baptist church, this, it, because this goes back to Paige Patterson, is if your husband abuses you, you must return to him 
because your faith will save him. He will see how worthy you are, and he will change. And in my mind, I'm thinking, but you think of us as worthless. You think of us as an appendage to a man, but now you're telling us we're worthy and we can change him. Those two things don't go together in my head. And then I began school here and took world religions for the first time. And I've studied religion for years and years because it's brought up in a Southern Baptist setting every single year. You're taking several weeks of classes. And I learn about something I haven't known, and I feel like an idiot. And for days, I'm raging and crying, and I'm, I'm DMing with him saying, I don't, I don't even know how to deal with this. I learn about Zoroastrianism. And as I'm listening to it, I realize that is not so different from Christianity. Those are all the same things. Those are the same symbols. Those are the same and it, it throws me for a loop because then I have to start thinking, where am I on this path? I am still a progressive Christian and I'm a homeless one because trying to find a so social justice church in this area has not worked out well for me because I am all about wanting to take care of the poor and the needy and I want people to have better choices. I want to be able to show them how to um, interview for better jobs. I want to show them how to live on a basic income, but I can't do that without a community of some sort because I'm only one person. So what I've lost in this journey was my sense of community, my sense of family, knowing that I had activities and things to do with, and my social circle has gotten so small that outside of this group, I have my daughter and my friend Cindy. And that has been it in this area because everything else I had to leave behind to stand up for doing what's morally, legally, and ethically correct, which is to make sure that we elect a government that remembers that it has checks and balances, that this is a Madisonian democracy and not a sovereign nation of any sort. We are, this is not a monarchy, and I want to make sure that we change that. So I am back in school to get my bachelor's of science in public policy because my intent is to work to restore those checks and balances in the system. And by the way, I am also a big public school proponent. I do not like the idea of home schools or Christian schools if it takes away from the kids who can't afford either. Not everyone can have a parent to stay home and take care of them and put them through school and not everybody can afford to pay for school. So I want a public option that works for most people because I want them educated too. And that's my story. Our next speaker was David Wheeler. David is a professor of journalism at the University of Tampa and received his undergraduate degree from Asbury University in Wilmore, Kentucky. He was also a member of the faculty there for a time. He's written for CNN, The Atlantic, and The New York Times, including pieces related to the realities of being LGBTQ on Christian campuses, as well as the changing academic landscapes of evangelical colleges and elsewhere. Here's David. Um... So my name is David Wheeler. I am a uh, journalism professor at uh, the University of Tampa. Um, and I am a fugitive from uh, 
the evangelical subculture. I'm a fugitive from an evangelical college, which was both my alma mater and my employer. I, I want to I tell, tell you a story about how this college degenerated in the, uh, from being a college that had a vibrant atmosphere where there was actual debate happening on real issues and you were allowed to be at this evangelical college which was at the time, uh, it was called Asbury College, now it's Asbury University near Lexington, Kentucky. And when I was a student there, there was vibrant debate. There was a college Democrats club as well as a, and that laugh is exactly what I'm talking about. It sounds unbelievable. Yes. There was a, there was a college Democrats group um, in the 90s. I was there from 95 to 99. You could be a theological liberal. You could be uh, a political liberal. And you could be part of the community. There was, we had a speaker one time when I was an undergrad at Asbury who said, Jesus would never have been a member of the Christian coalition. Right remember, did, right. you remember, do you remember that group from, uh, from way back when? He said Jesus never would have done that. So it was, it was a place where uh, there was rigorous debate. And, and you, could, you could be openly liberal theologically and, and politically. Well, I graduated in 99. And when I came back to teach there in 2006, things had changed. And I want to tell you a story a, a particular story about what happened when I was a student newspaper advisor, and it hastened my uh, exodus from the evangelical subculture, and I essentially became a fugitive from the evangelical subculture, and the University of Tampa saved me, and so now I can teach at a normal college. Um, I'm not a member of the LGBT plus community myself, but it was the treatment of that group that really hastened my, my exodus from this subculture. Picture it, spring of 2009. Everybody is talking about what they called at the time gay marriage, you know, what we would now say marriage equality. Everybody was talking about gay marriage in 2009. A few years earlier, the Episcopal Church had ordained the first openly gay bishop. Everybody was talking about it. Why wouldn't 18 to 22-year-old college students also be talking about it? They were. I was the student newspaper advisor, and I very, very naively <laughs> thought when one of my students said, I'd like to write an op-ed saying the church needs to rethink how it looks at um, the LGBT community. And I was like, well, that's a great idea. <laughs> um, and this is how her op-ed began. She gives the disclaimer, I need to state from the beginning that I am fully aware that the views I'm about to express are not shared by the majority of campus. They are not even shared by the majority of the newspaper staff. So she says, this disclaimer, this is only my view, not the college's view. She says, I do not believe, by the way, her name is Katie Payne, Big shout out to Katie Payne. Uh, she lives in Texas now. She says, I do not believe there is a biblical basis for homosexuality and Christianity being mutually exclusive, meaning I do not believe that homosexuality is a sin. 
when explored in the context of a committed monogamous relationship. Thus began the roller coaster ride of my life. <laughs> As the student newspaper advisor, I was dragged into one administrator's office after another. How could you do this? Don't you realize donors are going to be pulling their money? We had to publish as the student newspaper, we published four additional pages of the newspaper to accommodate the letters to the editor that rolled in to the newspaper after she wrote this editorial. The letters from people were this beautiful, if you'll pardon the, uh, pardon the expression, a beautiful rainbow <laughs> of views, of viewpoints, Everyone's view was represented. Everyone from exactly right, Katie. The church needs to welcome um, the LGBT community. All the way to people saying, you know what, back when I was at Asbury in the 60s, it was racism that we were dealing with. Well, I was so naive to think that you could still have this vibrant debate that I had as an undergrad because Asbury saw an opportunity, and that was embrace the religious right fully and completely. Mitch McConnell got is starting to get, he, he wasn't invited to speak when I was a student. Mitch McConnell, uh, you know, the longtime senator from, from Kentucky, who was senator at, in the 90s as well, um, and now majority leader. And um, he started getting honorary degrees and uh, invited to speak at the inauguration of, um, of uh, the Asbury's president in 2007. Eventually, it got so bad that as a journalism professor, I started getting the following kinds of questions from students and their parents. And of course, as we know, the decision for your kid to go to a, an evangelical college is a family decision. It's not just the kid's decision. If the whole family comes and kicks the tires of this place they're going to send their kid to. And I would get questions like this. You know, David, we're only considering colleges that have a human sexuality statement. Does Asbury have a human sexuality statement? That's code. Let me read you a small portion of Asbury's human sexuality statement. A faithful interpretation of scripture affirms the principle that sexual purity honors God and that all forms of sexual intimacy that occur outside of the covenant of heterosexual marriage are sinful distortions of the beauty that God intended. We do not surrender the biblical standard of sexual purity to the prevailing secular culture, nor the definition of male and female, those words are in quotes, to mean something more or different than an individual sex at birth. Translation, gay people not welcome. Transgender people not welcome. In fact, I wrote an article for the Chronicle of Higher Education where the day after the Obergefell decision, Asbury got together. All of their current and past presidents got on stage and said, we have to figure out a way to survive the day when the federal government says you have to start admitting gay and transgender students. We have to build up our endowment enough to where you don't need federal loans to go here anymore. So I escaped as a fugitive from Asbury, and I now teach at the University of Tampa. And a lot more to say, but I'm going to stop now and uh, <laughs> turn things 
Over. Our final panelist is Julie Ingersoll. She is the professor of religious studies at University of South Florida, where she teaches about religion and American culture with a focus on religion and politics and the religious right. She earned her PhD in religious studies from the University of California, Santa Barbara, and she is also the author of the book, Building God's Kingdom Inside the World of Christian Reconstruction. Here's Julie. Great. Hi, thank you for being here. This is really exciting, and I'm so thankful to have been invited to participate. Um, like Akiko, I feel uh, uh, alienated, and I live in Jacksonville, um, and there aren't communities there where you have re real opportunity to build relationships with people who um, aren't Trump supporters, for example, just as a shorthand for that. Um, so, so participating in an event like this is just really nice and rewarding for me, and I appreciate you all being here. Um, my personal background is in some ways similar, although I left evangelicalism much, much longer ago than any of these folks. Um, but my background there was much more extreme as well. Um, certainly, certainly being arrested with Operation Rescue was an ordinary thing for me <laughs> years ago. Um, but I was also part of a Christian reconstructionist family and um, uh, co-founded a, a Christian school and uh, was involved in all kinds of aspects of some of the most extreme parts of evangelicalism. Um, and I'm happy to talk about those sorts of things, but I'm far enough away from that now uh, that I kind of want to take a different tack here. Uh, I'm also now a professor of religious studies at the University of North Florida. Uh, my training is in American religion and uh, sociology of religion. And I've written a good bit on the kinds of issues that give rise to the ex-evangelical movement. Uh, my first book is about evangelical women who are leaderships in, in positions where their leadership roles are contested um, and the conflicts they face. Uh, it was written before there were podcasts, but in many ways, uh, it, it's an ethnographic study that draws on the stories of the women who experience the conflict. So I see it as, in many ways, um, an earlier version of the kinds of work that you're doing, Blake. Um, and then my most recent book is about Christian Reconstruction and the ways that that, that movement played into the um, rise of the religious right and gave the character that we see to evangelicalism um, today. So because I want to talk about, uh, I, I kind of see what I can do here, what I can contribute here, as to sort of help provide some sort of larger context for understanding the individual stories. Um, I think the individual stories are crucially important for a bunch of reasons um, that I'm sure that we'll talk about. Uh, but I think it's easy for people uh, who are defensive about criticism of evangelicalism to take individual stories and say, oh, well, that's just some, that's just that one story. So I think that the balance of sort of academic work in the background that uh, si um, situates these stories in a larger historical context and a larger critique can be um, valuable to the conversation. So uh, I, with that, I apologize. I have some written notes, um, academic geek and talking about my academic <laughs> stuff. So uh, I want to get the language right. Um, so I want to start with some general comments about the specific subculture that we refer to when we talk about evangelical now. Uh, and then follow with some brief comments about the use of the term over time and why ex-evangelical voices are crucially important. The long accepted story was that about 1980, in the aftermath of Roe versus Wade, evangelical Christians coalesced into a political movement. Um, we came to call that the Christian right or the religious right. But historian Randy, Randall Balmer has successfully challenged that, that narrative. 
by demonstrating that the central concerns were motiv motivating this early uh, Uh, small groups of conservative Christians were building a critique of American culture. They framed pluralism as polytheism and fought expanding notions of equality of all kinds. They fought for policies that shored up patriarchy and perpetuated white supremacy. And they sought to replace public education with Christian education. First it was Christian schools and then it was the Christian homeschool movement. They explicitly articulated a multi-generational strategy to transform all of culture. They promoted, to use their terms, a biblical worldview, the establishment of the kingdom of God, or taking the culture for Christ. At the very center of that strategy was the Christian school movement and the Christian homeschool movement. These forms of Christian education sometimes shock outsiders who expect a curriculum similar to a public school curriculum with a religion class added in. But homeschoolers report sometimes very little curriculum at all. Uh, other families use really intellectually impoverished curriculum like Bill Gothard's ATI. But even at the other end of the spectrum, uh, there are schools that promote what they call a classical Christian education, which meet many standards of academic rigor, but they're still focused on raising up culture warriors to build the kingdom of God. In virtually all instances, we find the perpetuation of strong gender hierarchies and a sense that the righteous should expect persecution and even martyrdom. Across the board, the curriculum is infused what ex-evangelicals have called Christian alt-facts, such as young earth creationism and so-called Christian American history, to name just two aspects of this. We can discuss that in more detail if you wish, but cultivating a willingness to deny rationality as a badge of membership is fertile soil for a president who says in Orwellian fashion, don't believe what you see and hear, believe what I tell you. Turning to my second point, the term evangelical itself is contested in ways that matter. Protestantism in America goes back to the colonial era, even what, even what we might call revivalist Protestantism that gave rise to evangelicalism has deep roots. But while today's evangelicalism has long historical roots, it's also very much a product of the second half of the 20th century. The term evangelical has a multiplicity of meanings and a history that has been largely written by elite evangelicals themselves. Starting with George Marsden, Nathan Hatch, and Martin Knoll, the story has been told in such a way to connect today's evangelicals with some of the best parts of American religious history. They claim the 19th century social reform movements including the, right to, uh, the fight for the right for women to vote, but not slavery. They claim the civil rights movement, but not segregation. Slavery and segregation are framed as perversions of the tradition, not authentic parts of it. This is what scholars call an authenticity discourse. These ways in which evangelicalism are defined are self-serving. The boundaries can be moved at will to insulate quote unquote authentic evangelicalism from critique. And while these authenticity discourses are common among insider elites who speak for the tradition, think academics, media, representatives, journalists who seek out perspectives on evangelicalism, they're strategic and non-falsifiable. 
and they shouldn't satisfy scholars or journalists. So in my view, the evangelical movement is important for at least two reasons. First, when I left evangelicalism for so many years ago, there was no Facebook group or XV Twitter. I had to do so much of that resetting with just a couple of friends. And make no mistake, this exit takes a serious rethinking of everything. The network of support and encouragement is invaluable. Second, exangelicals show clearly that definitions that purportedly rely on a set of theological beliefs, the Bevington quadrilateral for insider language there, um, those definitions are really inadequate. Evangelical beliefs vary over time, and they're both diverse and not unique to evangelicals. What makes evangelicalism discernible as a group are shared cultural touchstones. And today, those are largely not those preferred by the cultural elites who want to protect a respectable evangelicalism. Respectable is in quotes there, too. Um, there's a larger significance to this, because evangelicals, especially a few of you, are really good at social media, organizing, blogging, podcasting, and even scholarship. XVs are now challenging that self-serving narrative in really important ways. They're pointing out the problems in the tradition and directly challenging the efforts to promote it and protect it from critique. So I think that the work specifically that Chris does with regard to putting an alternative reading of the evangelical tradition out there in public is crucially important. Um, so those are my comments. Thanks, thanks again for being here. I'm pretty sure John Fee hates me for that. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> and in this final section here is our questions from the audience section. We get to have some good dialogue with members of the audience, and I hope you enjoy this final bit of the show. I will mention that the audio quality here is a little uh, rougher because our audio tech had disappeared for whatever reason. Um, so sorry about that, but hopefully you can understand and, and hear the question as well. All right, uh, thank you to the panelists for, um, for your wonderful um, stories and insights. We want to actually uh, open up everything to a panel discussion now as well as to questions from the audience. Um, first off, uh, I think our sound tech is gone, and also the wireless mic doesn't uh, record. So if you, don't, if you do have a question, you can, I can sort of sneak this one as close as I can <laughs> um, if you want to come forward if you have a question for the panel. I get a question. Yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> totally fine. Um, maybe I'll even just sit down. Sure. Are any of you aware of uh, a significant field of study regarding uh, religious trauma, specifically the um, the aspect of eternal torture in hell, and like we've been talking about with rapture anxiety? I, I've spoken with one. Uh, psychologist Valerie Tarico, uh, who talks about you know the way that evangelical culture kind of robs you of your ra uh, ability to rationalize and trust your own thoughts and instincts. But outside of uh, the conversation that I've had with her and some of her writing, I'm not aware of a very broad um, uh, research that's been done, uh, papers that have been written, people who are experts in this field. And I was wondering if some of you, as people that are uh, 
you know, uh, various connections to academia are aware. Is this anything that has any momentum behind it, this field of study? Um, <laughs> sorry, go ahead. Yeah, um, ac there's actually a really old book called Living in the Shadow of the Second Coming, which is terrific on this front, written by a historian. Um, so I don't, I don't know of any work in psychology, per se, uh, but certainly in, in history, um, American religious history and sociology, there's some, I'm doing some now working on um, persecution and martyrdom narratives and the way that end times work plays, end times fiction plays into that sort of stuff. Um, but there is some out there uh, from historical and sociological perspectives I know of. Uh, in terms of psychology, I don't know much beyond Marlene Winnell and um, Valerie Tirico, but Joshua Grubbs is a social psychologist mm -hmm. And, um, and ex-evangelical and his undergraduate alma mater is Liberty University. And um, he and at least one of his grad students are now doing some related research there. And he would also be a good person to ask about the research that's out there. There's one other person that, um, that I'm aware of that is doing this on a more individual basis. Her name is uh, Teresa Pasquale Mateus. And she's written books about spiritual trauma and religious trauma. Um, and is also doing more private work. Uh, and she also runs um, the Mystic Soul Project. So she is centered uh, a lot on, that is a, a person of color centered um, conference that she puts together uh, and is, is working on, but she does write a lot. She, it's not always tied specifically to evangelicalism. She has uh, a, has a spiritual background that includes some evangelicalism, um, but also includes uh, experience within Catholicism and other places too. But there are some people even on those individual levels that are doing that within their personal um, psychological practices as well as like building out their own programs and events. So, great question. I'm curious if any of you are, are familiar with this, like uh, familiar with it and could speak to any of the statements that, that were uh, that were said. I can speak to that. Uh, I just actually recorded a podcast episode where we broke down, translated, deconstructed the whole thing. Um, oh, do I need the microphone? Uh, so. Um, Thursday night, I um, recorded a podcast episode of this new podcast called Kitchen Table Cult. Uh, it's hosted by Hannah Ettinger and um, Kieran Darkwater. Many of you uh, may know Kieran Darkwater's autostraddle piece about Christofascism. It really helped to popularize the term Christofascism, and it was, you know, a, a very detailed accounting of some of the things that Catherine described about her own experience. Um, so that was really fun oddly enough, because that statement is, uh, is terrible. But, um, you know, it basically uh, starts off in language that sounds kind of nice to, to draw people in, you know, although you can see where it's going if you're familiar with the subculture. But it, it ends up uh, very much blaming uh, victims for speaking out about oppression. You know, it's really quite blatantly racist by the last couple of um, segments in there that, you know, maybe they hope people won't read that far or won't care by the time they read that far. Um, it's also, I think, I, I don't know exactly how to assess the significance of it. There's only one 
person among the main signatories who could even be considered, you know, maybe an A-lister among today's evangelicals, and that would be John MacArthur. Um, and, and the rest of these guys are like, they're not even close to household names. Um, but they've all blogged about it, well, some of them did anyway, in very self-important ways. They're like, you guys, 14 men met at a coffee shop and decided <laughs> that we have to <laughs> issue a statement on social justice because there's so much heresy in the church, oh my gosh. Uh, <laughs> um, so, uh, so yeah, we, uh, if you wanna hear us go blow by blow, check out that, um, that episode of Kitchen Table called It's a Good Project. Uh, give it your support if you can. Um, also, a lot of us had fun um, signing it with pearl names. <laughs> so <laughs> I signed the statement as Lilith the Fallen from Sunnydale, California, which of course is the fictional city in California where Buffy, Buffy the Vampire Slayer was set. <laughs> but, um, there were other fun names there like Biggest Dickus and others which I will probably not pronounce in public, but uh, <laughs> they, they, they seem to have deleted all of those now, unfortunately. <laughs> but I think it's just really, it's, it's a, it's a self-important thing that is not gonna get much traction. They're like, you guys, we really wanna be the next Nashville Statement. They're not the next Nashville Statement. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'll add, as, um, the one drafter of the, the statement uh, is a pastor from Cape Coral that um, my family knows, several families who go to the church. And when I showed my mom the statement and told her that uh, Tom Askell is one of the drafters, she was like, how is he important enough to even like do this? Because he's got this little tiny Reformed Baptist church. It's it's Southern Baptist, but he really spends all of his time complaining about the Southern Baptist Convention. Um, so they basically they should be like Orthodox Presbyterian, but they are hung up on baptism. So um, it's yeah, and I mean, it's very very patriarchal. Um, and I um, don't want to go into personal stories, but like, I mean, he's controlled, very controlled his daughter's courtships and endorsed the stay-at-home daughter movement. Um, Body Bachman, who's one of the other uh, original signatories, uh, is, um, I've described him as kind of like the uh, budget Doug Phillips or um, <laughs> budget uh, Jeff Botkin, who are these pro um, big name stay-at-home daughter movement um, people, well, Doug Phillips was until he uh, was disgraced because he um, turned out that he had been uh, um, sexually abusing his nanny for a bunch of years. Um, and so, um, yeah, so it's, these are people who are very, like, extremely patriarchal. Um, and then it should come as no surprise that Doug Wilson is one of the signet who at sign on, who they boosted his name as one of the like, top people. He wrote the book Southern Slavery as it was. It's a pure slavery apologetic, which he co-wrote with one of the board members from the League of the South, which you might recognize that name because they were one of the groups at the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville. So that gives you an idea of how white nationalists the people are who are involved in this. There's another piece of evidence on the, the white nationalist front. So there's also this guy, Justin Peters, one of the original signatories uh, who was pushing this really, really hard on Twitter and some of us trolled him and it was fun. It but was fun. <laughs> <laughs> um, he, uh, weirdly, in the midst of these conversations, suddenly just had this tweet where he was like bragging about knowing this Florida pastor 
who came to Florida from Africa and in fact uh, had been on the police anti-terrorist unit uh, in Rhodesia, you know, fighting for white apartheid against Africans. Uh, and um, Justin, or uh, this is Peter's guy, you know, he called him my African-American friend uh, in the tweet. So yes, these are super, super racist people. Part of what I do in my day job is I examine people and their social media and their other writings and things that they do to develop a picture of their motivation for why they do what they do. And I'm pretty accurate. And I can go to your social media and tell you a lot about yourself by that. If you're on the other side of the lawsuit, that probably doesn't make you very happy. But when I'm looking at motivation, and I read that statement, and I busted out laughing, because those should have been names that we all recognize, because we do come from the evangelical communities. We recognize the language in it, but I had to look at the motivation, and I realized I was looking at a group of people that were desperate for attention, and desperate to seem relevant today. They know they're losing their grip on power, they know that the demographics of this country are changing in a way that no longer favors them. And so they are going to work as far and as hard as they can to hold on to it. And it's going to become more and more extreme. And the only way that we combat that is to make sure that we address that. And we do that because a lot of times, especially Justin Peters, addresses us as if we were never Christian, never evangelical. Mm. And yet we come from backgrounds where we could teach exactly what he's teaching, so we know what techniques and tools they use. That scares them, and they begin to attack us. That statement is an attack on evangelicals, and it's an attack on anybody who's a person of color, anybody who is not cisgendered, anybody who isn't basically a white male, native-born American. So we have to make sure that when we see those things coming out in print or on the news, that we take the moment to respond. If it's coming out of, of the government officially, we respond. We call the White House. We call our representatives. We email them. We show up at their doors. We make sure that they understand that we are not going away and we are not going to allow their abuses and the patriarchy to continue because that patriarchy hurts not only women, but hurts everyone who isn't exactly like them. So the time has come that when we see that, we say something. And I think that we're all here because that's who we are anyway, isn't it? Go ahead. If Trump does get indicted and he gets kicked out, we have to deal with Pence, <laughs> which in my opinion is why we all left, you know, and why we're here today. Do you have any goals or any plans to implement or any strategies that in case this happens that we can stop this besides changing all of our house's labels? <laughs> <laughs> I've got it. Well, under the Article 2, there is a way that if it's an illegitimate presidency that you can also remove everybody that was in office with him, all the, the heads of the departments, all the, um, the vice president, all of it goes down. Now, our best shot is that if we take back the House, 
the Speaker of the House is in line of succession. We know that Pence was part of all of this because he supervised it all and he knows. So we can only have one person at a time that we can actually concentrate on. And for the moment, that's Trump. But next up to the batting cage will be Pence. Once Pence is removed, who's next in line but the Speaker of the House? And if we take back the House, that's going to be a Democrat. So maybe that's a lofty goal, but I'm working towards that personally. And uh, yeah, I'd like to add that um, the kind of work that we're just doing to expose the extremism that Pence represents remains important. And if we get to that sort of scenario, we can also remind everyone of the, the precedent of Spiro Agnew, right? So Pence should resign. Uh, I don't, if they try to sort of foist Pence on us, I don't think that he will, but that's some leverage that we can use to put public pressure on him. Uh, and we, I mean, also, of course, we've got to hope that he's um, exposed to be um, complicit in all these kinds of criminal things that are swirling around the Trump regime. But I would say that, you know, long term, uh, we have to keep uh, chipping away at simply uh, the, the kind of glib reporting that you see so often in the Washington Post and the Atlantic that simply their main axiom seems to be there are no bad Christian groups. There are no Christian groups that are actually important that are incompatible with democracy. We have to change that uh, in order to get people to see why someone like Pence is a problem. And personally speaking, I would rather that we have to fight Pence than fight Trump because I know how to beat somebody like Pence. I know how he thinks. I know how he operates, I know his mindset, I know how to stop evangelicals. Um, it's some, it's a, something that I know uh, inside and out. That's one of the reasons why I personally have been speaking out as much as I have and have kind of decided that I'm not keeping anybody's secrets anymore, yeah. that I don't, they don't owe me that my, si I don't owe them my silence because looking in the long term, if we get Pence, people need to know now what Pence is up to, which is one of the things that Chris mentioned, um, Kieran Darkwater's auto straddle piece. That's one of the things that we discussed in, um, like the reasons that Kieran wrote that piece was because he wanted to make sure people knew what the actual long-term game plan was. Um, and so yeah, I personally would rather try to stop because I know how to stop somebody like that. I'd love to sort of take that, take that, and and ask everyone along the panel um, because I think this is really central to to one of the many one of the benefits of evangelical voices and and events like this. Um, each of you, in your own way, have sort of talked about how um, we as people who used to be in this in this community now have an ability and an opportunity to act as either interpreters or translators for a broader audience that doesn't have this insider experience. Um, and I think that that's extremely valuable. Um, I know, Julie, in your, in your book, uh, Building God's Kingdom, you, you, you explicitly call that out in that evangelicals use the same words, but they have inherently different meanings. So, um, and that, that can actually confound or intentionally obfuscate things uh, for an outsider. So what are the sort of ways um, that we can 
continue to do that and continue to uh, elucidate and make clear for a broader audience that what is happening um, and what is being communicated by evangelical leaders as well as what's being taught to evangelical populations. some of us and talked about our significance for the Trump era in Newsweek, I was, you know, occasionally talking to her on the phone, emailing with her, I think, for a year and a half or so. You know, so, um, and, and she was always really on board. And, you know, we kind of, we had a good rapport. And um, she considered these issues important and was looking for a good time to write about it. So uh, the more we can kind of cultivate those relationships with sympathetic uh, journalists and those who have maybe done some hard-hitting pieces on evangelicals already and kind of buck the, the trend that you see in the Washington Post and the Atlantic and most of the time in the New York Times too, you know, that's something that um, those of us who can get access to the media just have to kind of plug away at over time. And, uh, and I think that we should also, you know, support each other's projects uh, and try to help each other get more publicity for the things that we are doing. So, you know, uh, I know there are a lot of books coming down the line. There are some books that have recently been published, memoirs about growing up in evangelicalism. Um, and a lot of this stuff was kind of being started just as, as individuals, and I think it'll be most effective now if we really 
try to support each other as a, as a community. Uh, so I hope we see more of that going ahead. say uh, something great that that journalists do I know I'm biased as a journalism professor uh, to say this but, but do you remember when Pence was asked can you discriminate but before he was you know long this is when he was still governor of Indiana can you according to this religious freedom bill can you discriminate against an LGBT person oh Hoosiers don't discriminate <laughs> if you can pointedly ask the question can you deny service to an LGBT person? Asking those direct questions because man, right now, like the, the, the evangelical colleges, they want their brand, they don't want their brand tainted by this discriminatory logo, so they sugarcoat things. And I remember back in the 90s when the Southern Baptist Church Affirmed, uh, they had a list of things that they affirmed, and and they said um, one of the things was women wives submit to your husbands, and and when the media jumped on that, a lot of their defenders said, but it says men should lay down their lives for their wives, men should sacrifice for their wives, and and so you know, why are you focusing on this one thing that women should submit to their wives? So if you look over the great branding that they're trying to do and ask pointed, direct questions, then that's a big help. And so documenting your own experiences with evangelicalism, your own experiences with the church is important because those are first person narratives that historians in the future can use to prove that the history that the evangelicals are telling in the future isn't what really happened. Um, so I actually got into a lot of this because, and got my first like, national attention um, when my alma mater, Covenant College, refused to print my alumni update about my work on a, a brief in the Perry and Windsor marriage equality cases. And so I kind of wanted to make sure that it was actually became a national story that they refused to do this and that they said they wouldn't print it because they thought it would be giving justification or that it would be giving their support to something they didn't agree with. I wanted to make sure that was that down the line, 30 years down the road, when they try to pretend that, oh, everything was all great, and oh, hey, look at our alumnus who went and worked for marriage equality, and this is proof that we were on the right side of history, that there's documentation <laughs> that that's not what happened. 
Catherine is far more optimistic than me about them ever actually getting to that point. But, uh, but, 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 uh, but putting that aside, there was something else that I wanted to add, um, which is that, uh, yeah, documenting these stories is important. And if you're the kind of person who is able to do this as you know um, someone who can publish freelance commentary or journalism, uh, we want to get to the underbelly and, again, not let them define their own narrative and not let them decide that, say, that the only people who count if we're doing journalism about evangelical colleges would be the administrators or the very compliant public faces or professors. So, you know, I did a story, an investigative piece. Um, I've done more commentary than journalism so far, but I'm starting to do a little more journalism for religion dispatches a couple years ago in which I tried to expose how evangelical colleges do these purges and how they're cracking down. And I quoted David, I quoted Katie Payne, who's a student from then, I told these stories and some other stories from some other schools to show that, yeah, they really are very serious about enforcing orthodoxy, and they don't want you to know that, and they don't want you to know things that they, they regularly use non-disclosure agreements to force purged faculty into, into silence. You know, someone like David is able to talk about it because he actually got another tenure-track job, uh, which is great. There are a lot of people who have been purged for political reasons from evangelical colleges who are bound by NDAs. But you know, ferret out the people who aren't. Ferret out the students uh, who are willing to talk about some of these things, retired faculty, whoever you can talk to, and tell that other story, the one that they are very actively trying to hide. And they are. You know, they also don't want you to know that in many cases now, when they're doing interviews about new employees they hire, they ask them uh, what their stance is on same-sex marriage. And they use that as a litmus test for whether someone can get hired or not. Um, so these are the kinds of things that we want to expose to get past the sugarcoating that David was talking about. Uh, real quick, adding on to that, um, uh, Asbury's uh, human sexuality statement that I read to you earlier, uh, that I read just, just a, a line or two from, that's not on the actual web page. You click to a PDF, and the point of that is Google isn't searching the PDF. So you can't easily see that they say that their policy is no LGBT people. Oh, and uh, those NDAs that I mentioned, the reason they can get away with using those is they're often tied to severance packages. So people who really don't have a choice not to, not to sign them or, you know, they're going to be out of a job and not have any financial support. I just want to clarify something. I know that removing Trump and Pence and getting a Democratic House Speaker as president is a long shot, and there are other things to do in the meantime, and I think I should just say that we are each here with a different skill set and a different area of expertise and different experiences, and I think that as a group and as a community, we can use that all together to combat what we're seeing happening here. I do find Pence to be far more dangerous because he has a veneer of respectability. He speaks softly, and he doesn't really say much. He doesn't really say anything of real substance, but that's to make you feel calm and comfortable. It's to make you feel safe, but it isn't a real safe. It isn't a safe place at all. But we, in the evangelical community, are the ones with the tools. We know the language. We know the tricks of the trade. So we can combat him that way. I like to think more legally. So I tend to look at how can I change that policy? How can I change that law? How can I bring attention to that and work from the inside on it? 
because I want to make sure that we do not turn into a theocracy. I don't want to see a dominionist as president because I think that when that happens, we will start to lose a lot of rights, a lot of them. We'll start to be limited in where we can work and what we can say and even what we can wear and do on our free time. So I would caution you that if you want a different country, you make sure that Pence gets exposed for who he is. And like he pointed out, his own statements are enough. His own history is enough to sink him if we work together as a team and do this. Uh, and I'll just add that on that public policy front, you know, which is very important, uh, it's not just a, a national battle. We have, we have to win local and state level battles. Uh, so don't neglect those, you know, because uh, we do still have this kind of loose American federalism and some states are a lot better than others in terms of protecting people's rights and providing access to health insurance and things like that. So yes, Trump and Pence and everything happening in Washington is very important, uh, but many of us are more likely to be able to do things about, say, local laws and ordinances we don't like. Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, and that, at least for me personally, um, that meant a lot to me, their writings, and it was part of my deconstruction, but uh, it became apparent over time that none of them had any kind of evangelical or fundamentalist religious extremism background, and that when I started meeting people that had a very similar upbringing as me and similar experience as me, it, it was such a more cathartic experience, but then also they had so much more insight into these issues than someone like Bill Maher. Uh, and so I'm curious uh, from your standpoint as, as people that are uh, working on events like this and podcasts and publications in this field, what the differences are or, or how you see a different approach or if there is one uh, in this uh, type of field versus what was going on you know, 10, 15 years ago with the new atheism movement. Um, I'll speak to that a little bit. I, uh, one of the things that, uh, that I mentioned in the brief in intro and everything um, was really that the thing that really can bind us together is that we have this shared background. Um, but I think one of, the, one of the most sort of central parts to most people's deconstruction and most people's, uh, most people's current state of belief is a sense of uh, humility and not in rejecting the idea that there's some sort of singular absolute um, theological or philosophical belief. Um, and I think that it, that it is important that um, the evangelical community has clear um, shared values and that they affirm people's personal autonomy, they affirm uh, the LGBT community, um, they affirm women, those things are table stakes, but regard, but it's not a new Christian creed. It's not one that um, that requires you to maintain a membership in, in some sort of religious, well, expression of any particular individual kind. And to me, that is uh, that is an essential aspect of this community. I think that that it does sometimes create uh, a sort of 
tension because it can be a pretty big tent. You've got people that are uh, that have no interest in religion, and some that are still um, that are still trying to find an, um, some satisfaction of some sort through religious answers. Um, and so that sometimes there's not always uh, an, a level of empathy that can be reached with every single person. But things, especially things like coming from very fundamentalist places or um, just the continual conversation you have with people in our age demographic of people coming out of purity culture, I mean, that screws with people no matter what they believe now. <laughs> so. Uh, I'd I like to add that I think you know, one of the problems with people like Bill Maher, Richard Dawkins, uh, Sam Harris, uh, and their willingness to say a lot about things that they haven't, not only they haven't lived, but they haven't even studied in detail or even tried to take seriously or study from the inside, is sort of exactly what's, what's wrong with uh, patriarchy uh, and heteronormativity in general. And they absolutely don't see it in themselves, you know, but now you've got Sam Harris embracing race science 2.0, and honestly, no one should be surprised. So I'm totally over the new atheists. <laughs> <laughs> but um, coming from the homeschool alumni community, a lot of us have actually gotten burned by the new atheism world because they kind of treated our stories as just something to use to bludgeon religion instead of as stories that are valid in and of themselves for the experiences that we had and lived through. Uh, I, I, and it speaks to a broader issue of needing to respect the stories of people who grew up in evangelicalism, who grew up in fundamentalism, who grew up in Hebrew school culture, because our lives, I mean, it's, these are lo actual like lives we're, talking, lives we're talking about, and it's not just somebody's entertainment or somebody's talking point. And I think that, um, so yeah, some of, a lot of the homeschool alumni got burned early on after the launch of Homeschoolers Anonymous because we got burned by like the way that some of the new atheist big leaders tried to treat our stories. Fighting anymore. 
Uh, to speak to that and the, the pendulum swing, I mean, we could also bring in a little bit of horseshoe theory here in as much as it's, it's really weird the way that right-wingers who are Christians and atheists have come together on certain things. Look at the new atheist embrace of Jordan Peterson and his lobster serotonin, uh, you know, or, or, or look at how TERFs, trans-exclusionary radical feminists, are happy to work with the Christian right to limit the rights of trans people, even though the Christian right people would obviously, you know, throw, um, you know, sort of old-school, second-wave lesbian feminists under the bus in a heartbeat. They don't care about their rights at all, but they all can hate trans people together. Yay. We kind of, yeah, I guess we probably should get the, the lunch the going because we only have an hour left in the room. Oh, okay. <laughs> no problem. I'm, I'm serving the lunch. So. Great. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so, should we, con so should we conclude? Uh, uh, sure. I the formal part of this. <laughs> I want to thank everybody for uh, for coming today and uh, for all the amazing discussion and commentary. Um, I'd like everyone, uh, again, my name is Blake Chastain. I'm the host of the Exvangelical Podcast. You can find me on Twitter at BRChastain. You can find the podcast anywhere you listen to podcasts. And I'd like everyone to go down the line and sort of mention what, anything they'd like to plug or, or whatever else. Uh, yeah, I'm Chris Stroop. I'm at C underscore Stroop. That's S-T-R-O-O-P on Twitter. My website is chrisstroop.com. The blog is called Not Your Mission Field. I have a resources page there uh, for deconstructing or just people who come from evangelical backgrounds. Uh, I want to keep expanding it, both purely secular and religious kinds of uh, resources for helping people from these backgrounds. Uh, I'm about to publish my fifth article in Playboy online only, but you can also find me there. Um, and you know, I've got some um, commentary and journalism around different places. Please support my Patreon. <laughs> you can find me on Twitter as Lily, one L, L-I-L-Y underscore warrior. I have a blog that I've shut down while I'm back in school because 18 hours of school and 40 hours a week doesn't leave me time to do much. I do have a chapter coming out in a book on Christian, Christian women's experiences with divorce inside the evangelical church. I don't know when that publication date is, and I don't know what she's titling the book, but I do have a chapter that I've written in there. Um, I will be submitting some um, devotionals for consideration for our Bible app, because I'm going to do it from a progressive Christian woman's perspective. I am still a Christian, but like I said, I'm probably just a Christ follower at this point because I have nothing else left. I don't want to fight the evangelical church. I want it to change. Hi, um, David Wheeler. My, you can find me on Twitter at Wheeler Workshop. I write a lot for CNN and The Atlantic. I'm working on a satirical movie about what it's like to be a journalist in the Trump era. <laughs> it's you called, are the enemy of the people. <laughs> yes, it's called When I Tell People I'm a Journalist. I have the trailer that I would love to show you. <laughs>
My name is Julie Ingersoll. I'm a professor of religious studies at the University of North Florida. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Julie Ingersoll. That's J-U-L-I-E-I-N-G-E-R-S-O-L-L. -L. And um, from my Twitter page, you can find uh, a web link that will have uh, courses that I teach. Um, the two books that I think might be relevant to the conversation here, the first is Evangelical Christian Women, Word Stories in the Gender Battles, and the say a little bit about what he's doing right now and you know and sure. they're trying to crowdfund uh, I know this research so this kind of thing that they're doing across going across the country so I'd like to uh, plug their GoFundMe as well however you are comfortable yeah, doing it hey my name is Josiah uh, I'm a journalist and an author and historical fiction novels about evangelicalism in the second half of the 20th century. Uh, the first one kind of deals with the Jesus movement of the 70s. Um, I, I mean, the whole conceit of the thing is to kind of show the progression of an evangelical character from birth to doubt to deconversion and you know, atheism, activism. And in order to show that whole uh, narrative, I needed to show the parents and kind of where they came from. And that's the first book. And then in the second book that uh, just came out a few weeks ago, it's about the 90s Christian rock era, the Left Behind books, the, the industry that wrapped, uh, was wrapped around this culture, and just kind of showing what it's like for this character who is gay and is an anti-gay preacher uh, discovering his own queer sexuality while he's in the spotlight of you know this massive movement that I think a lot of us were all wrapped up in. And we'll go ahead and end the, the episode here with this little teaser from Josiah. Josiah is actually going to be an upcoming guest on another episode of Exvangelical. You can join us uh, next week here in Chicago at City Lit Books at 6.30, which will include a reading from Josiah's book. So please check that out. Thanks for listening, everyone.